0: which is uh, on the cost of discipleship. I've entitled it, Do Your Sums. You know, it's important to do your sums, to count the cost uh, when you get involved in anything. Uh, I was um, telling the young people yesterday, more instructional than anything, most of you probably already know this, right? We're looking forward to year end. Many of us have booked vacations. And uh, before you go on a vacation, I said to them, make sure you don't buy an installment, <laughs> Okay. Because that's the worst thing you could do, you know, it's it's a uh, not even a depreciating asset, it's fleeting, because it's here, and then it's gone. But I, I warn them, you know, you go on vacation, you always do your sums, right? It's not just a matter of, do you have enough to pay the airfare to get there? Do you have enough to pay for your accommodation? And then once you're there, make sure you have enough to eat uh, decently, <laughs> Right? And also, there's local transportation that you need to look into. And and other costs like, uh, you know, if you want to go shopping, you need money to shop. And plus, please, please, please buy travel insurance. Right? So, you do your sums. If you want to have a wonderful, enjoyable time, do your sums. Um, Next, if you want to buy a house, you know, you also have to do your sums. I was sharing with them, I came across this article this week. A new study reports that Singapore HDBs are the most affordable housing in major cities in Asia. Is this really true? You know, and it, like, what? You know, we live in Singapore. How can Singapore be the most affordable? Well, it's a study that was done by the Urban Land Institute. And the data which they collected um, basically look at the ratio of home price to annual income. And obviously, they're looking at HDB, which makes sense because uh, over 75% of our population live in the HDB, or is it 80% now? You know, it's something like that. And so the, the price of the average price of the HDB is only 4.5 times uh, the price of our, or the amount of our annual income. You know, and that's why they say uh, Singapore is affordable. But I said to them, you know, because especially with young people who may be thinking of getting their BTO and the like, you know, uh, don't just look at the monthly mortgage. Many people calculate, oh, yeah, yeah, our salary and our CPF, enough to cover the monthly mortgage. Because you need to know that there are closing costs as well. You know, there are stamp duties, there are renovation costs, there are agent's fees, all kinds of other costs. So do your sums before you do it. As we look at this uh, passage of Scripture, Jesus is also warning the disciples that you need to count your, the cost of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, and I'm grateful... That, uh, you know, Jesus in calling us into discipleship, uh, not like the tech companies. You know, tech companies have uh, um, user and license, uh, end user license agreements, EULA. Right? If you've bought a new device, uh, a phone or an iPad or something, as you set it up, they always ask you, you know, please uh, uh, agree or accept this uh, uh, thing. I don't know if any of you have ever read it. Right? Maybe some of you are lawyers who are, you know, very. Uh, detail. I actually went and I downloaded, right, Apple because I use so many Apple devices. Discovered that the English version alone is 16 pages long. And if you go through, I don't know, I probably signed my life away when I click accept. <laughs> uh, and if you look at the whole document, 653 pages because every language imaginable, they have, uh, their, their license agreements. Well, Jesus didn't make it so difficult. He made it very clear in this passage. And so we want to look at this passage and ask ourselves, you know, what does it mean to count the cost to do our sums to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? And it starts in verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, And this is not the first time I've noticed that Jesus, you know, always tried to thin the crowd. He wanted to make sure people are following him for the right reasons. You know, not because they got fed, you know, on, on the hillside one day out of the blue from five uh, loaves and two fish, right? Or, or because of the miracu- uh, miraculous healings that took place or the deliverance, you know, just looking at all these things and trying to follow Jesus. He made very clear in this passage that you cannot just uh, um, slide into discipleship. You have to count the cost. Firstly, in verse 26, he warns them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother... Wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus saying, you know, abandon your family, hate them, you know, get into a, a, a family relational strife? No. He was using a, a literary technique of his day called hyperbole, where you want to make a point, you go to the extreme to, to, to make the point, and he's pointing out not that you actually hate these people in your life, but you cannot put them above your relationship with God, your relationship with Jesus. That your love for Jesus compared to your love for your family it should be like love versus hate. You know, and it stands to reason that ultimately he's saying you cannot... Rely or put your your trust in these relationships as good as they are, as important as they are. You know, families are God's design; that He's put us into families. He designed marriage uh, for the 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 benefit of humankind, but also to show us what it means uh, His relationship with us. And I won't get into that. Uh, that's another uh, topic altogether. But it goes on then in verse. 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now to us sitting here 2022 in Singapore, yeah, bear your own cross, follow him. Yeah, it's kind of important, but we don't maybe get the full impact that uh, his first hearers would have. For them, they had not gone through Jesus' crucifixion yet. Right, in their minds the cross was the most brutal way you could execute any criminal. And to say you need to bear your own cross, you need to carry your cross, you need to take up your cross, would have been very jarring to them. You know what does it mean that literally you have to be executed and not just executed in an ordinary way, you know, in the most brutal, most awful, most torturous way. That he was saying to them, if you want to be my disciples, you really have to lay it all down. If you want to follow after me, it's not just a walk in the park. And I'm going to skip ahead right to the end of the passage because it's the third time he then says why you have to do if you want to be my disciple. He says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He made it patently clear That it is an all or nothing proposition. That there is no half baked discipleship. There is no partial discipleship. There is no way we can do it, you know, just in increments. If there were any doubt as to what Jesus is trying to say, then he goes and he uses two metaphors, right? We go back to verse 28 and we see he picks it up from there. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. You know, next year we are planning our church camp again. And I love church camps because it's a time in which we go Away as a community, and we 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 have time to you know uh, be in close proximity with each other. We have uh, wonderful teaching sessions, and hopefully that's what we'll have next year. Times of meals together, but also you know opportunities to go out, and maybe do a little sightseeing, and getting to know people in a very different context. So, uh, advertisement, you know, book your dates. I think seventh to tenth of June is that right? Uh, the the dates that were um, uh, reserved, Malacca. All right, so that's just a, a, a save the date sort of notice. But oftentimes, when we went away for a church camp, you go to some of our surrounding countries. It's not uncommon for us to see half finished buildings, right? Then you come back three years later, and then the building is still half finished. You come back again, it's still half finished. And you start to wonder, you know, I, at least I wonder, it's like, what kind of fellow is this <laughs> developer? You know, why did they even begin if they didn't have the money to complete the task? You know, when we uh, went into the process to build this new building, which we now enjoy and and, and are grateful for, uh, I'm so grateful for people like Pakchi and those who have a lot of experience in the building uh, industry. You know, they sat down and do something. You know, there's nothing they ever teach you in seminary. <laughs> they didn't teach you in the seminary how to manage a building project, how to uh, look at building budgets, how to, you know, in uh, uh, negotiate with all the different... Uh, uh, um, consultants and and, uh, contractors and the like. But, you know, one of the things we discovered, or I discovered and I learned, you know, it's not enough to say how much does the building cost and then set the money aside. There were all kinds of contingency funds which we had to you know as a percentage of all the total building costs and we had to be very careful and I, I thank god for for again I have to mention Bakshi <laughs> because you know his his uh, forty years of experience in the industry really helped us uh, um, not just complete this building but complete it under budget. <laughs> you know we actually came in under and, and so there is a bit of a surplus. And that's why we are planning, uh, hopefully by the end of the year, to redevelop uh, our original building, what they call, we call now Block A. right? And, and, but you know you need to count the cost. You need to build a sum, uh, uh, work out your sums to make sure you can complete the project. And that's what discipleship is about. But then he, if there were any doubt, he goes on and uses another metaphor. He says, Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first, and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, I've done NS and I've done a little bit of military planning and been taught, right, the ratio is always three to one. Not only can you not be overwhelmed with double the amount of force, you are supposed to have... You know, uh, if he has 20,000, I need 60,000 troops to be able to overcome him. Right? And, And so it's making it patently clear, even if you have no military background, count the cost and ask the question, can you do it? But may I suggest to you that the cost he's asking us to count, Jesus, is not so much the cost of discipleship but the cost of non-discipleship. Because all of us are in a building project. Whether you admit it or not, whether you are Christian or not, you are trying to build up who you are, your identity. Trying to prove that you are enough. Trying to justify your existence and your meaning in life. We are always in a battle... (laughs) Right uh, through the forces that try to beat us down and to make our way in the world, so that at the end of the day we can feel like you know I am enough, I have significance, I have self worth, let me use one illustration, and I think it 's more applicable here uh, we 've been doing a, a town hall yesterday with our Saturday service, and you know they pointed out to me. Uh, Please don't use the word contemporary. You sound so boomer. Not you, like they said. It sounds a very boomer term. You know? <laughs> I said, okay, I'm a boomer. No, actually I'm Gen X. I always tell my kids, but they say okay, boomer. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless you start to understand and discover these things. But uh, so I, why so I get there, okay? Because the illustration I'm using probably applies to you more than it would have applied to them, although they're starting to understand. And I uh, you know how we look to work as the means of building our self-esteem and our self-worth, our enoughness. You know, like it or not, uh, many of us judge a person's worth by what they do, right? You get into any social situation, you meet up with people. You know, I had an um, alumni dinner last night and I met people I hadn't seen in 40 years, right? Since I left school in, in uh, yeah, 1982. Is, is Is that 40 years? Yeah, you know? And uh, they're very polite. They don't say, Wow, you gain so much weight. <laughs> but you know, inevitably, if they haven't seen me, they'll ask. Actually, nowadays, everyone knows. La. They hardly ever ask what I do, you know, because it's it's out there. But uh, you get in a situation like that, you tend to ask, You know, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? What do you do now? Right? And then you can almost see like that answer then determines is it worth continuing to talk to you or not? <laughs> That you measure a person's worth. Now, I'm not saying everyone does that, but it's human nature, isn't it? And like it or not, it's our nature that we tend to build our careers and our work become so important. Which is why I think, you know, especially in Singapore, we are looking forward to vacations because we work hard. We want to play hard. Look at these statistics I found. This is the average annual work hours. And you can see this decline, right? Uh, France is the red line, Germany is the green line, and the US is the blue line. And so this is where uh, the work hours have started to decline over the years. You know, the, I think France is talking about the four-day work week and the like. Guess where Singapore is? <laughs> Singapore is way in excess. We are one of the most overworked cities, not just in the world, but even in Asia, right? We're just barely behind uh, Tokyo as a city. And, and that's um, uh, a reflection of where society is, so much so that I think so many of us can probably identify with this cartoon, right? I'm not a workaholic. I just work to relax. Hey, make sure you go on your vacation. Please leave your laptop behind. Maybe you even need to leave your iPad and your smartphone behind. Otherwise, you're going to be tempted. I know I'm going to be tempted <laughs> as I leave on my trip. But it's a work trip. Well, kind of work, kind of uh, a pleasure. But nonetheless, you know, this, this tendency to find our um, self-worth, who we are, our significance in our work, actually points to the fact that, you know, if we 're not a disciple of Christ, we will be discipled by something else. There are so many people who look to work, not just in terms of their significance, they look to work as their refuge also right There are people who you know would rather spend late hours in the workplace because going home they have to face the problem of family relationships or the issues of parenting, and you know they rather avoid all that by pushing themselves harder and harder at work. David Zal, who wrote that book, Seculosity, my friend, uh, David Zal, he says this about work. He says, When work becomes the primary arbiter of identity, purpose, worth, and even community in our lives, it has ceased to function as employment and begun to function as a religion. It's like what that great theologian Bob Dylan said, you've got to serve somebody, <laughs> right? Inevitably, you will serve someone. If you're not discipled by Christ, you will be discipled at the workplace by your employment, by your work, by the world and the, the values of this world. So, you know, the reality is, yes, the cost for being a disciple is high, But may I suggest to you, the cost of being a non-disciple is even higher. Because you will never ultimately finish that project. You will go to battle and you will end up losing because the forces arrayed against you are overwhelming. That's why Jesus made this invitation. What we call the comfortable words later on in the communion, we, we, we say it. Jesus made that invitation to everyone saying, Come to me, all you who, are, who labor, who work hard and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is easy is light. Yes, there is a yoke. Yes, there is a burden to discipleship. Yeah, we're not trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. It will cost you. Not just something it costs you everything to be his disciple. But the reality is if you our disciple by anything else. If you worship anything else, it'll eat you alive, as David Foster Wallace points out. When Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest is really a metaphor or uh, you know, points to the reality that we are called to surrender ourselves to him, to no longer strive in our own strength, to get off that treadmill of life and to put ourselves in his hands. That's why it's not really terrifying when Jesus made this call, and he made it all three Gospels, you will see in various versions. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That uh, um, great saint of World War II, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote the book, uh, entitled uh, The Cost of Discipleship. The, in translation, it's called that. In the German, it's actually called Discipleship. And actually, there's a new uh, scholarly translation, which is, I feel much better. I've been going through it again uh, the last uh, a week or so and, and rereading it in this uh, fresh translation. He famously says, in I think it's probably the third chapter, he says, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus' call to discipleship is a call to lay everything down and to die. But he points out, you know, that as uh, Christians we need to understand that there is a distinction between cheap grace and costly grace. That cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance, he says in his book. It is baptism without the discipline of community, it is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross, grace without the living, incarnate Jesus Christ. It's grace on my own terms, not on the terms which God offers it to us. He goes on then to point out what costly grace is. He says costly grace is costly because it calls to discipleship. But it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. In other words, you know, it's not about following a set of rules or principles or meeting up to standards which are unmeetable. But it is just putting ourselves in His hands and following what He calls us to do. To trust and obey what Jesus says. And know that He is a gracious God. That He loves us and He calls us to Himself. It's costly because it costs people their lives, but it's grace because it thereby makes them live. That it is in this path of discipleship that we discover abundant life, how life is truly meant to be lived. It is costly because it condemns sin, but it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, grace is costly because it was costly to God, because it costs God the life of God's Son. You were bought with a price. And because nothing can be cheap to us which is costly to God. Above all, it is grace because the life of God's Son was not too costly for God to give in order to make us live. God did indeed give Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Costly grace is the word made flesh. Costly grace is Jesus come to dwell amongst us and to provide us a way out. He goes on and he talks about the problem sometimes with how we see grace. At times as Christians, we lean on grace and it's right that we lean upon grace. But it depends on whether you see grace as a presupposition or grace as a conclusion. Grace as a presupposition, uh, um, Bonhoeffer says, is really cheap grace. Grace as a, uh, a conclusion is costly grace. Then he uses this interesting illustration Faust, uh, the, the book written by Goethe. You know, Faust has been spending his entire life seeking knowledge, and at the end of his life, having this quest for knowledge, his conclusion is this I see that we can know nothing. Right? A person who's pursued knowledge, his conclusion is I see we can know nothing. He says that is a, a statement as a conclusion. Statement as a presumption is like a young undergraduate who's starting out the semester, first semester in university, and as a justification for his laziness, he says, I see that we can know nothing. So why bother? Right, so, as a presumption, it is not uh uh helpful, but as a conclusion, the sentence is true. as a presupposition, it is self-deception. That means ultimately, you know that grace to be grace has to be grace that is lived, that as we work and uh, move in the past that God has called us to, as we plunge into discipleship being willing to lay it all down and surrendering our lives, God's grace is sufficient for us. Yes, we may fall by the side, but He is the one who completes us. He is the one who enables us. He who calls is faithful, that He who began a good work in you will see it to completion in the day that He has set aside and purposed for it. That is His promise. That's why we are willing to step forth into this tremendous calling of discipleship. One more quote, if you (laughs) bear with me, I'm sorry. But I I can't say any better than these guys say it. That's why I quote them. Sammy Tippett, who's an evangelist and and well-known in Africa especially, but um, um, he has a daily devotional, and I, I found this quote from um, the forty days, uh, um, which we have, because I think uh, Liking Poussin, who prepared it uh, pulled out a quote, but I found the original quote by googling it, and it goes like this: "There's a great difference between the surrendered life and the committed life. The committed life, and, and context. Sorry, yeah. Uh, he pointing out that someone had said to him, you know, in the Western church, the problem is that you only have committed Christians, you don't have surrendered Christians." <laughs> And so he goes on to say this. The committed life emphasizes what we must do for Christ. The surrendered life says we can do nothing. The committed life communicates our accomplishments, but the surrendered life cries for God's power. The committed life is that of a hard worker, but the surrendered life is that of a slave. Surrender to Christ means we have yielded our will to His will. That we have no rights. We have signed our life over to Him. We will go where He wants us to go and do what He wants us to do. We will speak what He wants us to speak and be what He wants us to be. The surrendered life admits that Christ has won the victory over our will. It allows Him to accomplish His work in and through us it prays as jesus prayed not by not my will but thine be done that is the call to discipleship for each and every one of us you know our theme for the year is to trust and obey and i you know, if, as I stop and I think about it, I'm not just thinking about it in terms of where are you in this. You know, even as a, a pastor, a person who's given his life over to serve in full time, there are times I struggle with trusting and obeying. A word that God may give, an impression that He's laid on my heart, a, a, a desire to do something which, you know, I think the Lord has opened the door for, I struggle to trust and obey. And when I I think about it, you know, sometimes we would say, Lord, I really, really, truly love you. But yet our actions say, I don't really trust you. (laughs) Because we're not willing to go where He calls us to go. We're not willing to do what He asks us to do. Because there is a gap. But you see, failure to surrender to God doesn't mean we haven't surrendered to something else or someone else. To say, I won't trust God, doesn't mean we don't trust. The disobedience often stems from the fact that maybe our trust is in something or someone else. That maybe our trust is in our relationship with our spouse. We think to ourselves, you know, they are the ones Who complete me? Or it's our children, or possibly our employment, or maybe in something as general as the economy. You know that things are going to get better. My trust is there. The trust is not in God, or worse still, maybe the trust is in yourself. And, you know, I've come to know myself in these last 56 years. I know that I'm not really all that trustworthy. (laughs) Certainly not able to do everything I want to do or I know I ought to do. That if that is where you have placed your trust, you know, you're going to be deeply, deeply disappointed. That's why when Jesus makes that offer, when He makes that call, When he says to us, come to me, all you who labor and are heavily burdened, I will give you rest. It is a gracious call. As we come to the table of our Lord this morning, especially, we come to a God who reminds us that his love for us is unconditional. When we were still enemies, when we were still sinners, when we had no thought for Him at all, His thoughts were for us. He came and He died for us. And He demonstrates that His love for us remains. That even when we are faithless, He is faithful. That is the grace of God. That is the costly grace He calls us to. That is what we can stake our lives on. That is why as the people of God, if God calls you, put your trust in Him and just obey. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father God, we thank You again for Your Word. I thank You, Lord, that You didn't bury the terms of discipleship somewhere in some user agreement but you stated it up front. That if any man would come after me, if any woman would follow after me, that we are to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and then follow you. Lord, we acknowledge that we have been oftentimes following something else or someone else or some other agenda which so often not often not always lead to dead ends it lead to exhaustion it lead to disappointment it lead to discouragement and father it is you and you alone who offers us rest, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. That you are gentle and lowly in heart. And we see this heart on the cross where Jesus willingly laid down his life for us, where he surrendered himself that we might be free. Father, we ask that as we look at that surrendered life before us, that, Lord, we would follow in that same path. That we too will lay down our lives for you and surrender it to you, trusting in you that if God is for us, who can be against us? If he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how much more will he give us everything that we need? Lord, help us as the people of Church of the Good Shepherd to be a people that are totally surrendered to you, willing to follow hard after you. And even for those of us who struggle with that, Lord, I thank you that your grace is sufficient for us, that you who have begun a good work in us, you will see it to completion. And we continue to walk this path knowing that, Lord, we are on the path you have called us to. And help us, Lord, to see it to the end. We ask and pray these things in your son's most precious name. And all God's people say, Amen. Thank you, Pastor, for the word. Let us stand as we uh, recommit ourselves to be Christ's disciples using the Nicene Creed.